Hey, this is Louis Grenier here and welcome to The Human Strike Back by Hotjar, a weekly podcast designed to help you succeed by putting people first. I have the pleasure to co-host this podcast with my fellow human and colleague, David Peralta. Each week, we're going to learn the stories of other humans who are making a difference and thriving by putting their users, customers, and team members first, so you can learn from them, take action, and grow. On to the podcast. I'm David Peralta, and today we're talking with Alora Weaver, a copywriter who specializes in helping people speak human about the impact that storytelling can have on your business and how you can use your story to create meaningful relationships with your customers. She also shares a powerful story about the human cost of putting profit before people that's definitely worth listening to. Alora is a contributing writer to Copy Hackers, one of my favorite copywriting resources online, and is a story editor and content manager for the PRX podcast, Inflection Point. In today's episode, you'll learn how putting numbers before people leads to poor choices and a lack of trust from your customers, why storytelling is essential to sales, why you should frame your relationship with your customer as a shared story with the customer as a hero of that story how you can get actionable information out of qualitative feedback, and why it's so important for companies to be transparent and vulnerable. So if you want to discover how to communicate your story in a way that can help your business grow, this is definitely the right episode for you. So how, how did you get into copywriting? So I fell into copywriting, which is a lot of cases for people, uh, because it's not like there's a copywriting major in, in college. It just doesn't happen that way. I was a theater major. And then, um, to get work during the day, you know, my day job, I, I started doing business to business sales and I did that for a decade. What kind of, what kind of sales? Uh, well, I, <laughs> So one of the things I did was uh, sell business to business services to tech disposal, like people who wanted to get rid of their electronics, according to all the HIPAA stuff. Um, one of the jobs I had was selling advertising for a phone book. Um, and then the last business to business job was the best one, positively the best one, which was selling award winning children's books to school and public librarians. So that rocked. Um, and then I had my kids and I thought I was going to give being a stay-at-home mom a shot for a little bit. And I was, I, I, I'm not a good stay-at-home mom. And I needed some way of, of focusing my creative energy. And so I was like, eh, uh, I'll give content writing a shot. I discovered that that was a thing. And I became a, a like one of those little drones at a text broker or one of the, the content mills. And I was hammering out, you know, a thousand words per hour. And for like pennies for two cents a word. <laughs> Apparently, I was very good at it because the clients, these anonymous clients were saying, you need to get out of this and go do your own thing. We are not paying you enough. So I did. I, I opened my own website and I like I learned from the greatest. I learned from about content marketing uh, because I really did not want to have to go and chase down clients. I decided I wanted to bring clients to me. Right. But I also wanted to use my sales background. So I, I discovered the art and science of copywriting and I started learning from places like Copy Hackers and, and Neil Patel and Copy Blogger and um I started building my business and eventually I had the cojones to pitch, <laughs> pitch a guest post to Joanna Weeb at Copy Hackers about storytelling and about how um, using my theater background, for example, and, and my you know creative background, why storytelling is so intrinsic to sales and breaking it down because I couldn't find anything out there that really focused on the elements of storytelling and how it applies specifically to sales copy. Right. So that's what I did. I wrote this massive piece for copy hackers. It was like 7,000 words. It could have been an ebook. <laughs> had you ever, had you ever done anything on that size or scale before? Um, other than my master's thesis? No, <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was a passion. You know, it was something that was really just coming from, my soul and I was pouring it all out and I kind of see it as my manifesto of, of 
what I stand for and why I believe storytelling is is central to having a human to human experience and also frankly why it's the most efficient way to get business done um and the most sustainable way so um when did you write this uh, this storytelling manifesto masterpiece um i believe it was 2015 okay so 3 years ago and um was she the first was joanna weeb the first person that you uh that you asked for a guest pitch that you pitched a guest post to um on that scale, yes. I had also done a guest post for, I won a pitch contest for uh, Be a Freelance Blogger, which uh, was one of those training websites that I used as a resource. And um, my pitch was about how, because freelance bloggers, usually you know, they get paid like 20 bucks a piece sometimes. And mine was about, okay, so here's how I use content marketing to bring quality clients to me and how you can get paid more than 20 bucks a piece for blogging. So walk me through that, uh, that pitch process. How, how did you, first of all, how did you decide on, uh, on Joanna Weeb and copy hackers? And then what was the approach that you used to open that door? So first of all, copy hackers, like the, the, the tone, her approach, um, just Joanna herself, I felt a kindred spirit, right? And so she was definitely the the top person that I looked to for when I needed resources. And so it made sense for me to kind of give back to her and say, I noticed that this is something that people need, but it cannot find. And on your website, you rep, um, this is what I wrote to her, was on your website, there's tons of references to storytelling but no fundamental primers on what storytelling does to the human brain and how to use that to convert people. And my pitch to her was actually quite long and it was a I would never send a pitch like that to anyone. It was it was a total noob moment. <laughs> she actually wrote back and said I had to sit down with a glass of wine so I could take the time to read your <laughs> email. Wow. <laughs> so I was like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you were slightly inebriated as you read it. That made you a little bit more <laughs> open to my ideas. Um, but she was all in and, um, I, I sent her this, this outline. It was a very ambitious outline. I worked with her and her content manager at the time to, you know, hone it down. And, but it was still a massive endeavor. Um, and it apparently it's it's still getting shared and and getting massive uh, traffic to the website, so it's all good. Did you have any any anxiety about reaching out to someone that you admired in that space so much? I think at that point I was just like, no, you need this. This is something that I am perfectly positioned to do for you, and it really was a kind of like. I'm doing this out of appreciation for all of the wisdom you've shared with me. So I didn't mm -hmm. feel anxious because I felt like it was a, it was an opportunity for reciprocation. Right. I gotcha. And then, um, I want to take a step back because, uh, you've got a story about the moment you realized the dehumanizing side of business and how that caused you to pivot and want to never go back to that and to move towards a more human way of doing business, a more human way of relating to people uh, and, and selling to people and connecting with people. So I'm wondering, can you walk us through what it is that happened and what led you to that realization? Sure. Um, this was back in 2008. It was the winter of 2008. And I was in the midst of a, an advertising sales campaign for the local phone book company. Um, this was back before my copywriting days. Where, where was this, by the way? This was, I was living in Toledo. Toledo, uh, for, those of us who, for those of our listeners who are outside of, uh, of the U.S.? Yes, it is Toledo, Ohio, which is also known as, no offense to the t Toledo people, but it's, it's kind of lower Detroit, uh -huh. And <laughs> it's about an hour and a half outside of Detroit. And this area was really economically depressed. Um, it, it was seeing 
it was on the front lines of the the global economic crisis. So Mm -hmm. we had ghost towns of neighborhoods of homes that were being foreclosed. That's right. 2008. That was the winter of 2008. That was like, that was right at the the climax of the, of the economic recession, the global recession. But the recession had already been going on for at least a year, if not more in this area of the U S in the rust belt. So my job was to go out to all these small mom and pop shops and get them to spend thousands of dollars with my company on advertising. For uh, advertising in a phone book. In the phone book, right. And this was also at the same time that Facebook was coming out, right. And at the same time that smartphones were being adopted. And not just in the tech sector, but people are actually going into the store and picking up a smartphone. So people were, the, the phone book was becoming obsolete. And yet I was still working for a company whose bread and butter was selling advertising in a printed phone book. And were you aware of this, of this shift? Like, did you already kind of know like, Hey, this is kind of a dying industry or this is kind of a dying animal here. Not only was I aware, but I was the top sales rep for selling digital advertising because I knew that that's where everything was going. And I knew that people had to get on Google. So, um, yeah, it was, there was this heavy weight on my shoulders to, to fulfill the, the numbers, right? The majority of my sales, um, my sales quota was in selling print advertising and di- digital advertising was like this little icing. It was this little bonus thing. Right. So I would go out there knowing full well that this, that the service that I was offering was really kind of um, exploitative of these of these small businesses and that it really wasn't doing anything because they're advertising, right? It's supposedly in times of economic crisis, advertising is supposed to be good. But uh-huh. when you're trying to advertise locally to a depressed economy in the first place, who are you advertising to, right? right. <laughs> these people are not looking to spend money. So I had this moment where I I had to go out with my manager on like a field observation and I had this opportunity to sell a half page ad, which is a pretty expensive ad in the Detroit yellow pages to this guy who had been in business for 40 years and had never purchased advertising before. He just so happened to have decided that this year, because he was completely just there was no business coming his way. He was going to pay for advertising. So he was desperate. He was desperate. Yeah. Um, he lived on this farm out in rural Michigan. Um, he had lived with his mother who had just passed away. Um, and he gave me this envelope with $8,000 in cash in it and said, this is the last of my savings. This is all I've got. This is my last ditch shot. Um, I hope that this is going to work. And there's a part of me of course, that was saying, this is such a gamble, man. Don't do it, right? <laughs> and if I had not had my manager sitting there and if I had not had my sales quota, I would have probably had that courage to say, don't take this gamble. Take that $8,000, go somewhere, you know, do something with it. Don't put it towards this dying um, venue. But I took the money. And it was a terrible feeling. It should have been a victorious moment because it was actually getting me to my sales quota and it was putting that $8,000 on the sales board. But it was, it was this moment of shame. And I realized that this is what it's like to do business when you put numbers in front of people. That mm. when, you're, when, you're putting, when you're treating human beings like a hash mark on a sales board, then you're completely forgetting about the reality of their lives. And you're completely, and you're purposefully shielding yourself from that impact that you're making. And so I went to McDonald's with my manager and I said to him, I said, did we do the right thing by this guy? And he goes, you're the first sales rep I've ever seen to have, have feel guilty about selling a half page ad. And it was like, okay, I'm, I'm not, I'm in the wrong business and I don't think that I'm doing business for the right reasons. And so I made at that point, first of all, a decision to, to leave that company, but also to find a company that had purpose beyond profit. And that's when I went into that librarian sales job and then eventually right. transitioned into copywriting and deciding that I want to help companies like that 
librarian company and also some other companies to just focus on the purpose. What purpose are you serving? What's the impact that you're making, the real-life impact that you're making in people's lives? Because that's where your profits are going to come from, and that's where the reward is. So that's a heartbreaking story. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. I really feel for that guy. I, I'm wondering what, uh, what happened to him. Do you, do you know what business he was in, what, uh, what, his, what he was selling? He was selling um, door parts. He wasn't even selling like door, doors themselves. He was just selling like um, parts to doors and helping people repair their doors and stuff like that. And the hope was that his advertisement would reach people who were trying to hang on to their homes and repair instead of like flip their homes or resell them. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that much of anything came from that ad. I don't, I, we actually gave him a, an, a, a special phone number you could track to see how many calls were coming from that ad. And I looked at the numbers and psh, it, there was nothing. It was nothing. So the last of his savings pretty much went down the drain yeah. in the middle of the recession. Yeah. Wow. So I hope that, I think that luckily his, his home had already been paid off. So at least he didn't have to worry about his home being foreclosed like so many others. But, and I hope he came through it. So that's, that's an incredible example of exactly what you said. This is, this is what happens when you put numbers before people. Because like you said, if you had had a conscience, you would have spoken out and you would have said, you know what, maybe this is not the best use of your money. Maybe there's something else you could do with that money to attract more customers, or maybe there's something else you could do, you know, to shift your business or to save your business. But those numbers and your manager and that uh, that culture of hitting the quota above everything else prevented you from doing that. And so that's, and that's exactly a micro, what, that's a microcosm of a huge, a, huge problem in our economy and in how business is done. That's and that's exactly the reason why we started the show, because we're seeing this happening on a macro and micro level. You know, we're seeing individual people like you facing choices like this and feeling guilty about it. You know, you, you, you actually you, you have a sense, you have a conscience that tells you this is not the right thing to do, you know. And at the same time, what would have happened if you had if you had uh, counseled that guy and given him even better advice and he had given you that eight thousand dollars and got an actual return on it? You know, what would that have done? Uh, what would that have done? You know, what kind of trust would that have created exactly. for you? You know, what kind of trust would that have created uh, for for the company that you were working for, especially in a time of need to know that a company was willing to put his needs above their own? I mean, that's the kind you, you could create lifetime relationships. I mean, li- life, lifelong lasting relationships by making the right choice. But instead, what happened, you got a single sale and that guy... And who knows what happened to him, but he for sure is never going to trust that company again. He's There's no repeat business is going to come out of there. Right. I mean, it's like you can see how sustainably that just does not It just falls apart. Sense. Exactly. It, crum- exactly. it collapses. And, you know, the, the pressure, it wasn't just from the manager onto me to make, to make that, right? I mean, I probably would have got kicked under the table had I been like, you know what? Maybe you should put this towards the digital side of things, right? Um but he, these guys, they were putting the pressure on because they were getting that, that quota from the company and the company was getting, you know, pressure from the shareholders and, you know, it's, and they were probably trying to sell the company. So they wanted to make everything look wonderful. Um, so it, it, it's, yeah, it's all, it's all about a lack of transparency and um, a lack of empathy and also the ability and the, the willingness to be vulnerable because vulnerability, when you expose yourself, not literally, but, you know, expose, <laughs> expose your, of saying, look, you know what, this is probably not the best path for you. We are not the best people to help you. But here's where you can get help, right? Being vulnerable and saying we're not the best is okay because then you're showing that you care that you want to see that other person succeed. So now let's fast forward into your, your career as a, uh, as a copywriter. How did you start apply, th- how did you apply this mentality uh, and this way of doing business 
to finding your own clients and nurturing your own relationships with your clients? And what kind of results did you see when you did that? When I started copywriting, you know, one of the things they recommend when you're you're starting out is is looking at the the old greats of direct response copywriting. And I immediately recognized that that mentality, that um, win at all costs mentality, that grow at all costs mentality. And I was like, I've got a fight. I've got a fight to pick here. And mm-hmm. so I'm going to differentiate myself as a copywriter by showing that that win at all costs mentality does not serve you. Maybe it serves you to get that click. Maybe it serves you to get that one sale but it's not going to serve you to sustain relationships with customers and grow in the long term. Um, and I think, you know, the byproduct, we have a very fast growth culture right now. And it's partially because, oh, I want to sell, right? I'm going to, I'm going to make this startup boom. And I'm going to sell. I'm going to go retire, you know, and, and be a billionaire and I'm going to have my, 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 uh, Lambo. Right. Um, <laughs> right. So there's that that dream, but it's not a realistic dream, and it's certainly not um, it, it's it's not taking the human equation into it. That's right. Yeah. So and it's also it's also a dream that gets glamorized because the the number of people that that reach that is such a tiny sliver of a single percentage that but that's all the focus goes there and not on the reality of what everybody else's life is like and could be like. Right. And it's just, it's a dream that you're selling. Again, it's everything's for sale, right? As opposed to um, I'm offering to connect with you. I'm offering to play a role in 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 helping you to achieve the success that you define for yourself, not that somebody else defines for you of what success looks like. Um so as a copywriter, I realized that there was a, there was this space to fill and that storytelling was going to be the venue for that because storytelling is ultimately about um, seeing the big picture, right? When, you, when you're telling a story, you have to know what that big picture is going to look like. And you have to know who that hero of the story is, what their goals are, what their challenges are that they need to overcome, um, who is going to guide them in their journey and help them get closer to their goals, and ultimately what the um, the overall arching theme of that life is. And in business, that storytelling can be translated as the theme equals the values that somebody goes through life believing in. How do you as a company resonate your values? What's the theme of your company? And how do you live out those values? And then the hero within that story is your customer. You have to get to know who that customer is and what motivates them, what their fears are, what their, um, what their greatest aspirations are, and how do you inspire them to action that in a way that's aligned with their goals and not that, and, and aligned with their values. Right. Um, so, that's the story that you're telling with your customer. It's not about, I'm going to tell you about my story. It's, I want to tell a story with you together. And because when you're saying, I want to, to tell a story with you together, then you're thinking about the long-term relationship, right? Right. Um, so that's what I wanted to bring to the market of, of copywriting is, is that, that big picture storytelling focus. And then there's another thing that happens because when you when you tap into that story and it resonates with uh, with your customer, there's something inside of them that happens that resonates back with your story. And there's a relationship that starts to develop and, you know, an engagement that starts to happen already right from the beginning, which is really the power of that story. Uh, whereas when you're just using B2B marketing salesy kind of talk, like, there's no connection, you know, it's just like, are you going to help me reach my end goal? Yes or no. Instead of like, Hey, this is somebody who can really help me on my path to success, to reaching my higher goals, you know, to really help my company or help myself reach, reach the, the, my full potential of where I want to be as an individual or as a company. Right. Right. It's about, it's about digging into the fundamentals of the core of who that customer is, not just what they want. Um, and you know when I was when I was learning about copywriting, 
a lot of the training of copywriting is ultimately about manipulation. And it's about right. how, what buttons do you need to push? What are the power words, right? What are the, um, what are the triggers that you need to get people to, to click that, that buy button? And yes, I'm going to be using a little bit of that psychology too, but it's not because it, it's more about I'm going to get, I want to get you to the point where it just makes sense, right? There's no other option than to say yes to this because we are the best choice for you, right? As opposed to buy now. You better buy now <laughs> right. because yeah. we're going to take this offer away and you're never going to get it again. And by the way, your life will fall apart if you don't buy now. <laughs> So how do you walk companies through this process? How do you get them, how do you help them to discover what that story is, uh, what their hero is aspiring towards, what those pain points, what those challenges that the hero is facing, their customer is facing? How do you help a company discover that? That's um, through buyer persona is my very first uh, step. And when I go to a buyer persona, I, I, I spend quite a bit of time researching um, not only who their customer is, but who are the competitors' customers? Why, why are your customers going to you as opposed to your competitors? Um, I'm going through, if you're a startup, like pre-launch comp country, uh, company, sorry, um, then definitely going to see what the competitive analysis is and, and figuring out who, uh, who the demographic is. I use Alexa. I mean, this isn't, this isn't just some kind of like esoteric, Ooh, who's your customer? Now, walk, There's walk, walk, data walk to back that. it through. Walk me through that. Let's, let's, let's hear about that because I don't, I think a lot of people can very easily make assumptions and go into a buyer persona and think, oh, I think it's uh, marketing Mary, you know, and she's got two cats and a dog, you know, and, and, you know, she likes to watch friends or I guess that's a little dated now, but you know, whatever, I don't watch much TV anymore. <laughs> um, but um, so anyways, you know what I'm saying yeah. versus like, how do you actually find out the reality of who their customer is? What do you do? What data do you look at? What steps do you take? Um, when I get on the call with a, a new client, a lot of times they will give me that. They're like, oh, there's about, you know, between 30 and 40 and they are professionals and blah, blah, blah. So what the first thing I do is I go to Alexa and see who's actually coming to their website. And if they give me access to Google Analytics, I'll do that too. And I take a look at the, the demographic data, which is very high level. Um, it, it's not, it's not in depth, but at least gives you a, a general idea of, you know, do you have mostly younger visitors as opposed to people in their forties and fifties or uh, Alexa actually uses, um, are they coming to you from work, a P at work or from at home? You know, so that gives you an idea of what, what, where are they coming to you from? Who are they? What do they kind of look like? How much money do they make? All that kind of stuff. And then I narrow it down by either doing uh, customer surveys, if they already have a customer base, or I go to their competitors and see who is going to them and what do those people look like. Um, and then after that, after I get some, some, more um, specific customer data, I start digging into social media platforms. Who's following them? What do those, what do those profiles say? Now, I'm not going Cambridge Analytica on anybody. I'm just right. <laughs> taking a peek at some sample profiles just to get an idea and to see who else they're following, what their interests are. Um, I can even, you know, I go to Facebook groups or things like that and look up the topics of, of whatever your product or service is and see how people are talking about it or Amazon reviews and seeing how people are talking about it and what matters to them and what they care about. And then I eventually come up with a, with a user persona that gives a, a portrait of that human being. And how, uh, how are you gathering all that data? I mean, that, that can sometimes be an overwhelming amount of information that's coming in. How do you sort through the noise and discover, okay, this is relevant to me. All of this is not. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, you take a look at that profile and then you go back to the customer or the client and say, okay, so what percentage of your business would you say is coming from this person? The other thing I should mention is I love to listen to customer success phone calls too. 
because Mm -hmm. that gives me a better idea of um, what the challenges are or where maybe my client is not coming through on things and what matters to that customer. So we, you know, they, they, a lot of times, like, for example, I had this one client who was a, a college testing service and they said, well, we've got three types of moms that usually come to us. And so I go through the customer success conversations. I said, give me, give me examples of the, of people that exemplify that. They handed me conversations. I listened to them. I start picking up some information that maybe they didn't even notice about that person. Um, like there was this one mom who her daughter had started taking the SAT in eighth grade, you know, and then she happened right. to mention that her schedule is so full. And, uh, you know, so that's, that's a very different person than the mom whose, whose son is, um, probably going to be getting a sports scholarship and really they hadn't even been thinking about the SATs, but the place that they're getting a scholarship, you have to have a certain score for, right? right. So very different motivations um, and what matters to them. So that's as far as, as get, go, but getting through the noise, I'm not working with big data, right? I, my, mm-hmm. my, comp, my specialty is working with small companies, um, but there's definitely ways that you can, Come compile this data and see, all right, here's what fits this profile. Here's what fits this profile. And you mentioned customer surveys. What, uh, what kind of questions do you typically ask in, in those surveys? What, what are you looking for? A lot of times I ask them about problems that are immediate and then problem, problems that are kind of uh, bigger. I don't have my, I should have had my customer survey in front of me, but, uh, you know, sometimes I'll be like, so what, right, what's the biggest problem you're facing right now with blah, 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 right? But then I'll also say, what are, what are some concerns you have about your community or, you know, when you watch TV, when you're watching TV, what's something that jumps out at you that makes you feel afraid or makes you feel inspired? Um, I try to get, a. obviously these are things that are little written responses as opposed to like little quantified numbered responses, right, so open, open-ended, open-ended responses. questions. Right. Um, a lot of times I also, I, one of my customers, I got on the phone with, with one of their, their clients and just had a conversation with them, recorded the conversation. Um, so again, it's, it's that human to human interaction. It's about letting them be heard. And a lot of the pushback that you can get is, well, that's not quantifiable, right? That's right. not that you can't put that on a spreadsheet. But there are patterns and there are certain right. things you can create a profile and say there's um there's this thing called the emotional markets. And it it's by a um, guy named he's a futurist named Rolf Jensen. And he created these six kind of spheres that human beings inhabit. One of them is adventure. One is nostalgia. One is togetherness. One is comfort. Um, and I'm forgetting the other two, but the point is. And we'll refer to them back on, to, we'll, we'll refer to him on the show notes so people can find out for themselves. Yeah. And as you're, you're getting to know people, you can kind of figure out, oh, you live in the lifestyle world. You live in the world of, of personal expression or you live in the world of togetherness. And then you can infer a lot about their values from that. You know, um, individuals definitely have their own stories, but there are certain stories that are more all encompassing that people like to play into too. Yeah. So, um, you know, our, our CEO and founder, David Darmanin, he is huge into customer feedback. And, um, there was one time where, uh, they had been gathering that they, we've been running an NPS survey. So a net promoter score, uh, to ask, you know, how likely are people to recommend hot jar, then give a score between zero and 10. And then at the end, uh, there was an open-ended question. I think there was one sent to a segment of people, which is uh, people who left hot jar, uh, what was their score of hot jar? And then why did they leave? He had about a thousand responses. And so what he did is one night he sat down also with a glass of wine 
and some chocolate, actually. And, uh, and he went through every single one. And what he wasn't looking for was individual responses. What he was looking for was patterns. Exactly. Because once he started to see patterns in the responses, then he could start to group them together. And then he would start to see that there were outliers and those weren't that big of a deal. But then he started to see, I think, three, four or five emerging themes, you know, people putting it in their own ways. And then he knew, you could almost say quantifiably at that point, that these are the three to five things that are driving people away from using the product or the reason that's causing them to leave. And then it was like clear, then it's just like, okay, this is what we need to work on. And I think there's a little bit of an intimidation factor in, in, in getting quantifiable information out of qualitative feedback. Right. But that's where you get the most insight because that's where people are sharing their personal perspective with you. That's where people are sharing exactly, hey, I'm telling you, you know, this is what it is. This is why I'm leaving your product or this is why I love your product so much. And uh, it is time consuming. I mean, he had to put aside an entire evening. But actually, when you think about it, I mean, I don't know, maybe it took him three, four, five hours to do it. Uh, it's a big block of time and he had to put everything else uh, out of the way. But I mean, three, four or five hours to figure out what are the three top reasons why people are leaving your product. I mean, what kind of return are you going to get on that when you can take that to your product team and say, these are the top three things that we need to work on? And if you needed to automate that, you could because you can take that quant that qualitative data, throw it into like a word cloud or something and see what the top words are that people are using. Um, right. So there's ways to identify the patterns. And that's actually something that I do too with, with storytelling and, and capturing a voice. I'll take my clients. Um, I can record a conversation with my client, have it transcribed, throw it into a word cloud, find out what are the, you know, what are the overarching themes within this conversation? What's driving this conversation? Um, and that's how you start to create a portrait of what matters to people. What, uh, what tool do you use specifically to get that word cloud? Oh, <laughs> giving me a quiz here. I'll give fine. you a, I'll give you a link. <laughs> yeah. It's a word, it's just a word cloud generator. You can just paste anything into, and actually you can make cute little shapes and everything out of the words. Um, <laughs> so um, yeah, this, this idea of patterns is, is actually intrinsic to storytelling itself. Storytelling is a pattern. Nar narrative is a pattern. Okay. So now, now, You've uh, we've walked through how you've used surveys, you've gotten responses, you've gone into social media, you've uh, you've used Google Analytics, you've used Alexa, and by the way, that's that's uh, Alexa, the search, not the search, the uh, the website ranking service, yes. not Alexa, the, uh, the yeah. Amazon uh, bot. <laughs> and so you use all this information first to get a high level view of what where you need to focus, who this kind of person is that's buying from your client. Uh, and then you start to dig deeper into individual people, their profiles, what they're looking at, their individual responses to your surveys. Um, you're starting to find patterns. And once you find patterns, you start to realize, okay, this is what's important to them. This is what matters to them. These are the challenges that you're, that they're facing. So now you've got this persona. What do you do with that? I give it to the client and we work on the next step, which m might be creating a, a brand voice guideline. Um, a lot of times with my startup clients that have, have achieved a certain amount of, of they're ready to scale up. They want to hone in on what their brand personality is now. Um, I'll create a, a corresponding brand persona that either um, echoes what that person does or fill, fulfills or differentiates themselves, right? So we share these values, but here's how I differ, I'm differing from you because I have the ability to produce this product or I have the knowledge or skills or connections to get you to this next level. Um, and then we talk about what the customer cares about, to, or I'm sorry, what the client cares about in my end, um, mm -hmm. what the company cares about, what their purpose is beyond the profit motivation. So um, we talk about the why, right? The, the, the big why that Simon Sinek talks about in his TED Talk about uh, what, what people follow. People aren't following leaders because of what they're doing. They're following leaders because of why they're doing it. 
And so that's about distilling that down into that brand persona and how you personify that. And that's definitely more of a, a, quant, a qualitative process than a quantitative process, because that really is about a conversation. And it's about getting vulnerable with right. your, you know, especially with my, my tech founders and my CEOs, they're so attuned to having a, um, a persona of success of infallibility and you kind of have to peel back the layers and say, where, where are you lacking? Where are things that your customer can help you with? Because Mm -hmm. if you're infallible, then you're, you're, you're going to, you're going to eventually disappoint your customer in some way. Yeah, absolutely. That is so important because so many of us as individuals and as companies, we want to project this aura of success that we know what we're doing, that we've got the answers and that we hope by the projecting this perfect image, people are going to be like, oh, that person knows what they're talking about. That person, you know, like that company is succeeding, but that's not the reality. And that's also not the reality that our customers are living because nobody is perfect and nobody's path to success is a straight line from perfect idea, you know, put it out there on the market and it takes off. Like there's a massive amount of work that goes into that. And when you pull back the curtain and show that and people see that and they realize, oh, this is, this, this company is just like me. This company is struggling just like me and they're still succeeding. They're still doing well. You know, that gives me hope. That gives me so much more trust in the fact that, you know, this is a real company, you know, I'm going to, I am much more likely personally, I'm much more likely to believe uh, what a company is saying uh, in their newsletters to what a company is saying in, in, you know, across their communication. If I have that feeling that they're being authentic and transparent and vulnerable with me, you know, I was Um, um, just looking at, I think it was buffer. I was so impressed because they have every year they release their, um, their employment uh, equality standings, right? They're saying, how close are we to closing the gender or racial gap within our community? And sometimes they fall short and they're honest about it. And they say, we see this and this is what we're going to do. Instead of having some PR person cover up, right? And make it shiny. They're saying, this is the work that we're going to be doing on this. This is the work that we as a company have to do, and we're just one company. And if we have this problem, then a lot of other companies are having this problem. So let's work on this together. That is so admirable and makes me love Buffer in a way that, you know, sometimes their their product falls short for me, but I don't care because as a company, as a brand, they're, they're so willing to go the distance beyond just making a good product. They're making, they want to make a good world. Right. And this, this goes back to what you were saying also about how, um, if you, if you are projecting this infallible image, there's no opening for the customer to come towards you. Right. Because you're not, you're not leaving yourself open to listen to them because if you've got all the answers, your customer can't contribute anything to you. And that's why having a two-way relationship with your customer is so important. That's something that we value immensely here at Hotjar is getting feedback from the customer and having the customer, having our users help us build the product because we don't have the answers. They do. They're using the product and they're, they're, they're out there in the real world and finding out, you know, situations where it's not living up to, to what they need. And when they tell us that, we build it with them and then... We tell them, hey, thank you so much for that feedback. We did what you asked for. Here it is. And then it's just like, it just creates a symbiotic relationship where it's just like, you know, you start to develop an emotional attachment to a company, yes. you know, and, and that's like, you know, I, I think, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, you, you could never have imagined that that would be a possibility, but it's through authenticity. It's not through manipulation. No. And, you know, this is something that res- I use over and over and over again as a copywriter when I remind myself, it is personal. It, you know, there's this whole thing about, oh, it's not, it's not personal, it's just business. That's BS. Right. The business that you do personally affects the people that are employed by the business, the people who are running the business, 
and the people who purchase from the business. Those are personal interactions. So to kind of put a wall between this professionalism and the personal is to, again, dehumanize that relationship and to, and as a business, you're saying, oh, I'm not responsible for what personally happens to you. And there's, yeah, there's the, the, the liability issues and blah, blah, blah. That's a completely separate issue than having an emotional connection and building trust and, and setting this up not as a transactional um, experience, but as a relationship that builds over time. Right. So I also want to ask you, you're doing this with companies, you're coming in, you're helping them to find their story, to change the way that they're communicating with their customers, to change you know, um, their messaging. What happens at that point? What kind of results have you seen with companies who make this shift? So the quantif I keep saying quantifiable and qualifiable and getting them confused, but anyway, um, the quantifiable results are increased conversions and uh, business growth because you've got people seeing, oh, you get me, right? I couldn't imagine doing business with anybody else because you're so in line with what I believe and what I want and how you can help me. So of course I'm going to do business with you. And you start attracting the, the same type of person and, and people and their friends because they're that that person is going to not only be excited about doing business with you, but when people get excited, they have to share it. Right. And so right. it becomes a viral thing that they're pulling their friends in. And all of a sudden you are building that tribe around your brand. Um, so the conversions are a lot more direct than a lot of other ways. Um, the other thing that you get is you get feedback. You constantly get feedback and it's positive and negative, but it's feedback. And if you're a business that values uh, empathy and, and the whole design thinking thing, feedback is invaluable because you're constantly getting data. And then you can start this testing is, and iterating and optimizing. This is a point that I also really want to want to support because when you communicate in a way that's uh, that's resonating with your customers and they start to care about you, they want to give you feedback because they care. They care. They, they want to see you succeed. To help you, they want to help improve the product. They want to help you succeed, and they have the feeling that you're going to listen to them. I many times get surveys from like giant companies and giant corporations and I'm just like, I don't have time for this. Like, I don't really care, but I will get uh, a request from a company that I feel has been very open with me. And I feel like I'm going to take the time to answer this. I'm going to take the time to give them. And sometimes I end up taking a lot more time than I thought and write paragraphs about why I think something should be improved because I care you know, about their success. And I know that their success is intertwined with mine. And that's also, there's a lot of, there's quantifiable results. Like you said, there's increased conversions. There's increased uh, lifetime value of a customer because they stay with you longer. There's decreased churn, you know, because they don't want to leave you. Uh, but then there's also the the intangibles, which is this uh, this connection that gets created to the company and the result of wanting to help more. And then it's like the more data you get, the more people want to give you feedback, the more feedback you get, the better you can make the product. And it's just like, it's just like, it's, it's just like, there are so many things that happen when you're honest with people and when you authenticate, when you communicate vulnerably and authentically, it's just like, it, it's, <laughs> it's like, how could you possibly believe that this is not the best way to do things, you know? But um, anyways, I get a little emotional about it. I get a little passionate about it. I, I feel you, man. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so so related to that, uh, I mean, I know we talked about this a lot, but uh, a lot of people are on the fence about embracing a people first approach and thinking that it's all you know touchy feely stuff and doesn't lead to anything measurable. So, what would you say to help them understand that putting people first really is the only sustainable way to succeed in the long term? Well, I think the first question to that person is, do you want a sustainable way to succeed in the long term? What do you value? Because if you don't value sustainability and you don't see the value in, in long-term growth, then you're probably, you're right. It's not going to be the best decision for you. Um, but you also have, I, I encourage you to think about the impact that your decisions are making, your short-term decisions are making, because hopefully you're the kind of person who cares about what impact you're making in the world. Now, assuming that you are somebody who cares about the impact you're making in the world, then you need to stop fearing the unquantifiable 
and embrace the fact that you have the capacity to innovate and find a way of quantifying impact and that you can look to places like um, Acumen, which is a social entrepreneurship uh, nonprofit that helps people uh, develop sustainable business models. And they're constantly finding new ways of, of following and measuring impact. Um, you can look to places like nonprofits, even though they're nonprofits, that doesn't mean that they don't have great business models and great uh, ways of making change. And I'm assuming that if you're a founder and you're, you're an entrepreneur, that you're a change maker, because otherwise, why are you in business if, if not to improve lives or improve some aspect of the world that only you have found a way to do? So, yeah, as far as pushing back against this idea of, of human first and people first, um, I think it's because people are, 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 are messy and sometimes it's okay to embrace the mess and, and find the beauty in the mess. And, and then you can make order out of the mess. Right. Well, great. And then my, my final question is, if you had to pick one resource to help our listeners succeed by putting people first, what would that be? I think that storytelling is the best place to start because it really does help you understand um, the, the language of humanity and how to speak to human beings. And so uh, I, I found a great playlist of uh, TED Talks that are by master storytellers, some of whom are in films, some of whom are in social activism, some of whom are in, um, are, are, are in entrepreneurship. Uh, one that stands out to me is by Andrew Stanton, who is the filmmaker behind Story, Toy Story and Wally, e and uh, did a bunch of Pixar. And he breaks down what storytelling is and how to tell a great story, and why telling a great story matters to people, um, and how it inspires people to action. So uh, I've seen that TED Talk, and I will recommend it to everybody who's listening to this, because it starts with one of my favorite jokes of all time. Uh, so it is well worth well worth a listen to. And I, I agree, I think that's a wonderful resource. So Alora, thank you so much thank for taking you. the time. And if anybody wants to learn more about you or your approach to storytelling and speaking human to human, where should they go? My website is wordweaverfreelance.com. Um, another resource you can use is that article that I mentioned on copy hackers. It's called Story Hacking. And that, that would be a great way of doing it. And, and then you can also reach out on Twitter. I'm at wordweaverfree. Great. Okay. Thanks again for taking the time. Thank you. Thanks for listening, my fellow human. We know how fast-paced life is. And so if you're listening to this on your daily commute, or while running, or even cooking, you can always go to hotjar.com humans and look for today's episode. That's where you'll find access to all the resources and humans we talked about, the full transcript of the conversation, and even links to related episodes. And if you liked today's episode, please help us out by leaving your honest rating and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. The more honest feedback we get, the more we can improve the show for you, and the more this podcast will be discovered by other humans. It's a win-win situation. Until next time, take care and be human.